Now, for those less familiar with me, whether you're on our live stream or whether you're in the room, my name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Last time I preached on Romans 8, it was actually the last Sunday we were unable to gather physically. It was the first time I was ever on the live stream. And on that Sunday, as we were reviewing what was going on with Romans 8, I talked about how the Apostle Paul was emphasizing in the chapter over and over and over again how blessed we are in Christ. The exact language I used was saying it was a treasure chest of blessings. Now, if you recall listening to the live feed, I actually said treasure chest. Words were hard that Sunday. In explaining how blessed we are in Christ, Paul is pushing his listeners, he's pushing his listeners to experience something called assurance. He's helping them grow in confidence at understanding who they are in Christ, helping them understand the depth of how they've been blessed. In doing so, he's addressing a number of challenges to that assurance. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons Christians are not confident. There are all sorts of reasons that Christians live as though they are defeated and discouraged. Paul wants them to experience something different. So another way Paul persuades his listeners in experiencing assurance is to conclude this chapter, to conclude his thoughts here with a series of rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Now, in case you need a reminder, the answer to a rhetorical question should be pretty obvious. Let's, let's practice a few for the, the sake of what Paul's doing here. Can pigs fly? Unless we're living in some fantasy land or fairy tale, which we are not, the answer to that question is obviously no. Is the Pope Catholic? Okay, this is not intended to stir philosophical or theological debate about what it means to be Catholic. Yes, the Pope is Catholic. And one of my favorites, have you lost your mind? Right? This is not a question to ask your husband or wife. Maybe you are doing something that is uncharacteristic or out of the ordinary, but no, you have not lost your mind. So when using rhetorical questions, Paul is persuading us to experience assurance, but he's also surfacing objections to that assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, of course. But the accusations of others, they weigh heavy on us. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Of course he will give us all things, but sometimes it feels like it's not enough. 
In, responses, in response to the questions we covered last week, Paul emphasized God's actions on our behalf. God surrendering his own son. Christ suffering for sinners. Christ rising from the dead. Christ interceding for us. This morning we come to the final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's follow-up approach here is a little different. He doesn't immediately affirm God's actions on our behalf. He asks another question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul doesn't answer with a who, but rather a what. And that what is suffering, significant suffering, challenges and trials, disease, disability, and death, poverty, and persecution. The potential objection to understanding the depth of Christ's love for sinners is suffering. By nature of the rhetorical question, Paul is confident. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. Suffering can't either. So as he concludes chapter 8, he is leading us on a journey to better understand assurance in suffering. That's our focus this morning. Now before we get too far into that journey, we should, we should clarify. As Paul is provi- providing assurance, as he's leading us on that path, he is not denying its significance something Christians tend to be very good at. When we are in pain, when others are in pain, we sometimes tend to think somber and sadness are not good. So we like to use cliches and platitudes to minimize that somber and sadness, often with disastrous results. I remember one of my friends, as a child, he was maybe seven or eight, His mother lost a long battle with cancer. And one of the things he remembers that was said to him, it was something that was, you know, someone was probably wanting to comfort him was, hey, everything happens for a reason, right? This is one of those cliches. Not necessarily wrong, but the message to him was, don't be sad. These words dismissed his pain and comfort, telling him he need not be somber. You shouldn't be sad because this was God's plan. God didn't want your mommy to live, so you should be okay. In surfacing suffering, Paul is not denying its significance. Rather, he's identifying how significant it is. Beyond connecting it to fears, it may physically separate us from God's love. Paul is addressing how it can produce emotional separation, psychological separation, and spiritual separation. Suffering surfaces doubts. Is God good? 
Does God love me? Does God care about me? Paul anticipates a major cause of concern and doubt and source of uncertainty for the Christian. It is as if he peers through the centuries, anticipating challenges to the Christian faith described in C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain. When experiencing hardship, when suffering, when facing trials and challenges, isn't that proof God doesn't exist? Or God isn't powerful? Or God isn't good? Paul was certainly familiar with how suffering might affect Christians. He did not have what we would describe as the ideal life. So in 2 Corinthians 11, we hear about it, and he says this, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods, Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Life was not easy for Paul. He certainly experienced significant suffering. And while Christians in America are often shielded from many of the challenging circumstances described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 and Romans 8, having been involved in church leadership now for more than two decades I know that we are not disconnected from significant suffering. There is the woman abused or assaulted sexually by someone she didn't know or by someone she did know, a friend, a coworker, a cousin, a father, significant suffering. The man or woman experiencing sins of racism, being called derogatory terms, not given particular opportunities because of the color of his or her skin, told they could not talk to or date specific individuals. Significant suffering. The husband and the wife who long for a baby. Yet month after month, the death of that dream is confronted time and time again. Significant suffering. The one who knows they did not grow up in the home of a biological parent. As much as they rationalize reasons good parents surrender such a responsibility, in their heart they struggle 
with having been rejected and abandoned. Significant suffering. A mother whose husband has left her to raise children essentially on her own. She must figure out how not only to be the solo parent, but how to help her children understand when the Bible uses the term father, it is good, significant suffering. We could go on and on experiencing the dramatic death of a loved one waking up and struggling to get out of bed because of physical pain or depression or disability, trials in the workplace, others rejecting us or withdrawing from us, all sources of significant suffering. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Situations of significant suffering, they're not just hard. They often work to change our view of God. We doubt his character. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his promises. In doing so, we also may tend to form how we view ourselves. And so Paul references Psalm 44 in the verse that follows. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44 is what is called a psalm of lament. The authors, the sons of Korah, they were dealing with issues of pain and suffering. And in the midst of experiencing pain and suffering, they were discouraged. They held a belief that if they acted a particular way, if they put their trust in God, well, then they should experience positive circumstances, bountiful blessing. Right? You and I, we tend to often think this way as well. If I pray to God, if I'm faithful in the things he asks me to do in his word, well, then God will bless me. This is how the sons of Korah explain their disposition in Psalm 44. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. They're saying, God, we do not trust in things of this earth. We do not trust in our own strength. Rather, we trust in your good character. We testify about it. We proclaim it to others. We believe in you. We do not doubt you. They continue, but you have rejected and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Circumstances did not play out the way they anticipated they should. God was not meeting their expectations. The, the psalm writers were expressing how they ultimately viewed themselves in such a situation, like sheep for slaughter. They viewed themselves as defeated. Doesn't suffering often feel this way? You have particular expectations of how you believe God will work in 
your life, in your dating relationships, leading you to the husband and wife of your dreams, only to, to not have it play out that way. How you have been married to the husband and wife of your dreams, only to have it fall significantly short. Of how God will have specific circumstances play out at work, or how God should work when you step into a leadership role in the church, or how God will work in your family, and how you expect him to save your kids, and your expectations aren't met. It feels like you have been rejected and disgraced. It's hard to get up in the morning. The room is darker than it should be. You feel defeated and depressed. Like the sons of Korah, you are discouraged. This can be dangerous. Listen to author Paul Tripp. Left unchecked, discouragement will become your eyes and ears determining what you see and hear and how you see and hear it. Unchecked, it will become the master of your emotions and the ruler of your choice and actions. Unchecked, discouragement will rob you of your hope and motivation. It will steal your reason for doing good things. It will rob you of your ability to trust. It will make you closed, self-protected, and easily overwhelmed. Discouragement will sap you of your strength and courage. So one of the things I've never been good at is having close relationships. Uh, Some of you know this about me. I'm kind of a loner. I like to be autonomous and independent. Because of my story, I struggle to trust others and to be vulnerable. Uh, But by the Lord's grace, through his healing, through an amazing wife, many uh, of the wounds related to this have been healed. And and a number of years back, I came to a point when I looked around and and I realized I had a few deep friendships, brothers who were on mission with me, brothers who were pushing me, brothers who were present with me. I remember telling my wife how it was so uncharacteristic to have such relationships. And in a matter of months, right after that conversation, a number of unanticipated shifts took place. And relationships were harder again. Why hadn't God blessed my growth? And with those shifts, I felt alone and abandoned and discouraged. With much of my being, I wanted to withdraw all over again. Suffering tends to shatter us at the very core. We feel as though we are defeated and wrecked. It can make us feel like victims and losers. In surfacing suffering as an objection to understanding how much Christ loves us, Paul is addressing our doubts, and he is addressing those feelings. Does suffering mean we are separated from God's love? Does suffering mean we are defeated? Verse 37. No, in all these things, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul expresses assurance in suffering. He emphasizes his security in Christ. Even in the midst of suffering, God cares for his people. God loves his people. God has not abandoned his people. And in describing assurance beyond emphasizing God's work on our behalf, Paul emphasizes our identity in Christ. Conquerors. More than conquerors. So rather than being defeated, we have been delivered. Rather than being wrecked, we have been rescued. Rather than being left victims, we are victors. And rather than losers, we have been liberated. To better understand what Paul is saying, let's make a few observations. One, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. So this doesn't mean we are conquerors after we have overcome what we believe to be defeating us. So I was having lunch with a good friend recently. His wife has been sick for many years, and he was sharing about all of the treatments and remedies they had pursued, how much money and time and emotion they had spent without even realizing it. In his words, they were prepared to do whatever it took for her to experience healing. He was saying how God was awakening him to how broken that actually was. They wouldn't have said it this way, but they were connecting deliverance. They, They were connecting their source of victory to her healing. You being a conqueror is not about you experiencing victory or experiencing closure in whatever it feels like is defeating you. In our suffering, we are more than conquerors. We are not conquerors because of our achievements. When you have no longer committed a particular sin for X number of months, when you memorized all of Romans 8, when you achieve a particular standard of living, when we crush COVID and it is no longer a threat to our communities, we are more than conquerors in our suffering. So it's not about our achievements or our actions. Two, we are more than conquerors. This we is not a universal we. It does not apply to every person on the face of the earth or everyone listening to this message. If you are not a Christian, if you do not love God and know God as Paul describes this we back in verse 28, this is not your promise. And so maybe today you're thriving and flourishing and the the pains of old age aren't catching up with you. But they will. You will not escape them. And human achievement won't save you. Your actions, they will not deliver you. You cannot escape suffering. You cannot escape impending disease and darkness and death. You will be defeated. I imagine one of the obstacles 
that you believe is there to placing your faith in Christ is doubt. You, you don't want to let go of it. This God that Christians proclaim, His love, His good character, His power, He has not met your expectations. And so you continue to doubt. I want you to know the enemy of faith is not doubt. It's what you do with doubt. Every one of us at First City Church experiences doubt to varying degrees. We are a perplexed people. Scripture is filled with examples of saints who doubt In the psalm we looked at earlier, Psalm 44, the the sons of Korah, they are experiencing doubt and uncertainty. But in that doubt, they turn and cry out to the Lord. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The enemy of faith is not doubt, it's denial. In your doubt, Scripture invites you to reject denial and cry out to the Lord, to seek Him, to pray, Lord, even though I'm filled with doubt, I will surrender to You. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Such a prayer Even it is a significant gift of His grace and expresses desire for Him to deliver you. I said it earlier and I'll say it again. We are not conquerors because of our achievements or because of our action or even because of the strength of our faith. Three, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice Paul doesn't say through him who loves us. Paul uses love in the the past tense. What God did in the past provides assurance in suffering. Let Let me share an illustration of why past tense matters that I'm going to borrow from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a preacher back in the 1800s Now, in his illustration, he he talks about people who are emigrating to Australia. I didn't think emigrating to Australia is something many of us would identify with. So I'm going to take some liberty this morning, and I'm going to talk about emigrating to the great state of Nebraska. Some of you probably do identify with this. I've also modified the illustration a little bit to connect more with themes of suffering. All right, so let's suppose... There are two individuals who emigrated to the state of Nebraska. And suppose they each had pieces of land side by side. The portions of land given to them are the same both in quantity and quality. They have been given that land. The deed is publicly registered. It is their land. Now suppose some years they experience hardship. Sometimes it rains too little. Sometimes it rains too much. Of course, it never rains just enough, spoken like every good Nebraska farmer. 
Sometimes there are infestations of insects. Sometimes there are hailstorms and dust storms. Sometimes others make charges against them, telling them they plant too early or they plant too late or they plant too shallow or they plant too deep. Both of them face the same challenges. Now, one of them sets to work, and he is assured that land is his. Believing that land is his, believing he is a planter, he works a particular way. There is a freedom and confidence and assurance as he goes about cultivating the land in spite of those circumstances. The other doubts that land has been given to him. He interprets the circumstances he encounters, the challenges and trials, as evidence he is being rejected. He wonders whether or not he is really worthy of being the owner of that land. And so rather than work it, he continually leaves the work. He repeatedly goes to the public registry to ask, is the land really mine? He asks if there must be some mistake, whether there was not some flaw in the decision to give him the land. The one does not doubt the deed to the land, that it is his, and so he works diligently on. He looks, he looks back to an event that was recorded in the past to validate his standing and identity in spite of his circumstances. The other hardly ever feels sure the land is his. And so in the midst of those challenging circumstances, spends much of his time going to Lincoln or, or the capital of the county with needless inquiries about it. He's uncertain about his standing. That event, even though it occurred, even though he has the deed, offers little to no assurance. Notice, both of these men have the gift of the land, but they function very differently. So regardless of your level of assurance this morning, regardless of how confident you feel in Christ, you have been delivered. You have been rescued. You have been given, given victory over sin and death. Nothing will separate you from his love. You are more than a conqueror. Such truth is rooted in events in the past. Your circumstances and your level of certainty, they do not change that. Paul is looking back to God's past actions to validate assurance in current circumstances. He has in mind things like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In the past, God sent his son to rescue sinners. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in the past, by dying on the cross, Christ gained your victory over the power of sin and death. In Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In the past, Christ reconciled you to God. You no longer deserve his wrath. Your sins no longer define you, nor does your doubt. You have been delivered. And, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the past, Christ died to liberate you and set you free. Paul experiences assurance in suffering because of his understanding of the gospel. The gospel means everything to him. It is proof of God's character. It is proof of his love. It is proof that he has delivered his people and has not left them defeated. The gospel shatters any potential source of division between the love of God and the people of God, even situations of suffering as significant as they are. Because of what God did, Paul knows he is loved. Paul knows he is cared for. He is confident and he is assured. Paul has been leading his hearers on a journey to understand the assurance they have in Christ. God is for sinners. God loves sinners. God cares so much for sinners. And here at the conclusion, Paul is caught up in worship and awe and thankfulness and gratitude. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In, suffer, in surfacing suffering at the end of Romans, Paul is not answering every question we have about suffering. He's not telling us why suffering exists He's not even necessarily telling us how to deal with our suffering. He is helping us understand in the midst of our suffering, in light of the gospel, who God is and who we are in relation to him. So Paul speaks without hesitation or doubt or feelings of defeat. He is bold. He is confident. He upholds Christ's victory in the cross. It is finished. And so he is more than a conqueror. Too many of us, we live as though we are defeated by our suffering. We hang our heads. We struggle. The questions of whether or not God loves us or cares for us they consume us. His word to us this morning is you have not been defeated by your suffering. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror and you are not unloved. You have not been abandoned. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. Let's pray.